Hello and welcome to Wine Blast, the podcast that brings wine to life with a smile, as featured in The Times, Telegraph, Mail, Mirror, Metro and The Daily Star. It's your bucket list done then, isn't it? The Daily Star. Now that really is the big time. I mean, come on. Hey. The crazy times are here. You are, of course, referring to our our previous episode where Mm. Professor Tim Spector encouraged us wine lovers to drink hundreds or thousands of different grape varieties for the sake of our health. He did. Which then somehow got picked up in a massive way in the press, didn't yeah, it? Funny that, funny that. Anyway, <laughs> I wonder um, why. It, it was a fun episode, wasn't it? If you haven't listened to it yet, you must. That's an order. Uh, and in this episode, we're very on message too because we are following doctor's orders mm-hmm. uh, and focusing Dr. entirely Tim. on red wine, which mm-hmm. which um, Tim did say is, is the best one for our health. Didn't mm-hmm. he? uh, and the red wine we are focusing on is Pinot Noir. From Australia. Absolutely. This is a sponsored episode in collaboration with Wine Australia. Uh, We've been really keen to return to the Aussie wine theme uh, after our first ever episode focused on Australian wine back in 2020, Mm -hmm. um, after I'd been out there to visit. I I think it's called Australia on Fire, March Mm. 2020, our Mm. debut. Uh, and, and also, given we we were bemoaning how expensive and scarce Burgundian Pinot Noir is becoming mm, just mm. a few episodes ago, we thought it would be a good thing to hone in on Australian Pinot Noir, which yeah. is really exciting right now. It is. Everyone's talking about Aussie Pinot Noir, aren't mm. they? Um, I mean, I think it's partly because cause there's just been a, a big Pinot Noir celebration in Mornington Peninsula, uh, which we'll come on to. But I also think it's because... Every wine lover wants to experience great Pinot Noir at a price that, you know, doesn't lead to existential despair. Um, it's, like, it's like the quest for the Holy Grail, isn't it? You know, a glimpse of Nirvana mm. in an affordable glass, you know. And, and I think Australian Pinot Noir really seems to be capturing the zeitgeist in that regard. Pinot fervour is certainly affecting everyone in the country right now. When you might not expect that grape as the first red grape for people to talk about, it certainly is today and it will be in the future too. You know, Australian Pinot Noir, I think pound for pound is is really some of the most complex, profound, interesting and also great value Pinot Noir in the world. Jane Lopes and Matthew Dukes there, both of whom we'll be hearing more from in due course. We'll also be talking to Mac Forbes, one of the most prominent and respected Pinot Noir growers in Australia. And of course, we've got some great bottles in front of us to taste and recommend. So let's get going. Um, now, Matthew touched there on the fact that Pinot Noir might not be the first wine grape you associate with Australia. Um, that would probably be Shiraz. Yeah. Or Cabernet, perhaps? Yeah, 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 fair enough. Um, talking about? Well, both sort of big, bold reds mm. uh, from a warm, dry climate. Um, I guess you might add Semillon, uh, you know, or historically you might refer to the famous Dickies or Sweet and Fortified Wines Australia used to make back in the day. Um, and if you did associate a Burgundian grape variety with Australia, it may well be Chardonnay rather than Pinot Noir. I think so. But, you know, let's face it, times change. Um And it is interesting that as global warming sets in, it's a cooler climate grape Mm. variety like Pinot Noir that's coming to the fore in Australia. I mean, you know, admittedly, alongside other warmer climate varieties, particularly the Italian varieties and Mediterranean ones. Absolutely. You know, I, I think sort of engaging with climate change has probably been one of several reasons why Aussie producers have been looking beyond... I don't know, what you might term their traditional wine remit and sort of exploring in terms of, you know, different regions, clones, mm. rootstocks, sort of vineyard management and, and winemaking. And of course, you know, the Aussies have 
have always been sort of great innovators and experimenters, haven't they? They have. I also wonder if Absolutely. I don't know if every wine grower secretly wants to grow Pinot Noir, you know, just to see if they can make the heartbreak grapes sing, you know, even though it's so demanding in terms of the site and conditions and and create, I suppose, it needs to make really good wine. I mean, it um, definitely seems to have built up momentum over the last decade or mm, so, doesn't it? it I mean, really even does. fairly recently, we'd have said there were some good Aussie Pinot Noirs, but the category as a whole wasn't exactly compelling. Mm, but mm. now that's clearly no longer mm, true. You mm, mean, mm. and did you know, just in terms of numbers, Pinot Noir is the fourth most crushed red variety in Australia after Shiraz, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Merlot. I didn't know that actually. I suppose it makes sense, uh, especially now. Yeah, you know, I mean, so much chat I mean, about it. You think it's that's probably fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it, let's face it; it's still not huge. Um, only about yeah. I think four percent of the national vineyard, and that's definitely not massive given it was first brought to Australia in the early 19th century mm. so I mean it's had a bit of time to, to get going um, but I do think it's fair to say Aussie Pinot Noir punches above its weight you know it's grown in around three quarters of Australian wine regions mm. it has the most listings of any red wine variety in bars and restaurants in Australia That's plus it's the fastest growing red wine wine variety in terms of sales in Australian shops so that's perhaps a sign of where things are going with Pinot Noir mm. and what might be to come yeah intriguing i do love a good fact or figure me thank, there we go. thank you for keeping me happy that's that's my my pleasure darling. really interesting actually so i suppose <laughs> you know it's there's lots going on with with aussie pinot noir yeah. isn't there in terms of regionality uh winemaking innovation debates around price and the future um and we're going to get into all of that in this program um on which note we should probably hear from the first of our three brilliant guests, shouldn't we? Absolutely. So Matthew Jukes uh, is a hugely respected wine writer who specialises in Australia, as well as Burgundy, Bordeaux and Piedmont. Uh, he produces an annual wine report on all these regions, uh, including his 100 Best Australian Wines report and roadshow. Now, I spoke to Matthew when he'd literally just stepped off the plane from Australia. So I asked him how his trip had been and what was new and exciting particularly with regard to Pinot Noir. Um, everyone there is extremely excited, not least because um, many of the journalists that I met had attended the uh, Pinot Noir celebration in Mornington. And Pinot fervour is certainly affecting everyone in the country right now. When you might not expect that grape as the first red grape for people to talk about, it certainly is today and it will be in the future too. So, I mean, you do talk to wine drinkers generally quite a lot about Australian wine, including Pinot Noir. Um, so having been at the celebration, having talked to people, would you say perceptions have changed towards Pinot in the last decade or two? And, and if so, you know, how have they changed? Yeah, I think the attitude towards Pinot in Australia has never been more uh, excited and engaged. And I think that's because Pinot growers in Oz are very collaborative and collegiate. Um, they're also some of the most forward thinking with regard to sort of sustainability and looking after the paddocks that where they've got the vines planted. But then in terms of viticulture and vinification and then style and respecting your your uh, region, sub-region and even vineyard itself um, is, is really a big thing. Um, so they, they kind of club together uh, in a way that the Cabernet and the Shiraz uh, people don't seem to. And I think that's probably a massive advantage when they're trying to attack the world with their products, which, of course, come up against other great Pinot zones uh, around the planet. That's very interesting. Um, now, 
we're obviously talking about Australian Pinot Noir uh, today, but you talk about Cabernet and Shiraz. And one of the things you're known for is creating the, the Great Australian Red Wine Competition back in 2006 with the specific aim of finding the best Cabernet Shiraz blend, which you describe, and you're probably not going to forgive me for this, but you describe as Australia's only unique and age-worthy flag bearer to stand confidently alongside the benchmark red wines of Bordeaux, Burgundy, the Rhone, Piedmont, Tuscany and California. Now, it might be a bit unfair of me to pick on that quote right now. Um, hopefully you'll forgive me. Um, but I'm just wondering, as both a Burgundian and an Australian expert, how do you feel Pinot Noir really stacks up qualitatively in, in a global context, the Australian Pinot Noir? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, I think they sit side by side, both Pinot and the Great Australian Red Blend of Cab and Shiraz. And that's simply because they do different jobs. Um, they they love being, um, you know, lined up in a dinner party, Pinot coming first, obviously, and then move on to the, the larger reds later on. Pinot in Australia has picked up momentum and is really accelerating away from the blocks. And that's evinced by the quality of the wines, the complexity of the wines, the breadth of the offering these days, and also the fact that you can find Pinot across different regions of Australia and they have different characteristics. I think Australia is doing a really good job, albeit in a small way, of making very honest Pinot from £13 a bottle. I have a £13 Pinot in my 100 Best Australian Wines report this year up to sky's the limit. So just looking at price for a moment, there's a few things I'd love to pick up on there. But let's let's look at price as you've mentioned it. You know, Burgundy is getting ever more scarce, more expensive. Wine lovers are understandably having to look elsewhere for, for affordable Pinot and Chardonnay. Do you think, um, given the price of the Australian Pinots, because I know you say they sort of start at 13, but they can be pretty pricey. Do you know, can Australia fill the gap? Australia literally fills the gap. There is a gap. There's a gap between the, the inexpensive mass-produced Pinots of the world, which, you know, as you know, um, as you come in at the sort of 15 quidish to 20 quidish kind of mark, which, I mean, inexpensive at 20 quid, and that's rather a strange statement, but it's true with Pinot. Uh, and then uh, in Burgundy, of course, one leaps up to north of 50 quid very quickly if you want to have a half-decent bottle of wine. And that's why I, I just don't drink them as much as I used to. And uh, fortunately, Australia comes in at that 30 to 50 zone with a mass of great producers um, you know, up to single bit, you know, single vineyard level as well as, well as estate blended level, and and they're they're really really serious wines. They're wines that give scores to that, you know, I reserve for kind of some of the more famous Burgundian producers. So the, the gap, but that's true of the what Australia does anyway. Chardonnay, Cabernet, and Shiraz, with all of its great varieties, it fills this gap just underneath the classics of Europe. So if you were talking to a to a consumer, what would you say? is Australian Pinot's USP? And are there any specific regions within Australia that you would point people towards? So the, the, the specific Aussie USP is always value, coupled with, you know, innate professionalism and deliciousness. And these are wines that tend to drink fairly young in their lives, like most New World warm climate Pinots tend to drink early. But the, the secret trick that Aussie Pinots have is that they last, they live, and they go a long way if they're given the opportunity, uh, developing as they go, which is obviously seen as a European kind of trademark. But 
Australian wines have that, which is which is really exciting. Um, there are wines from quite a lot of different regions. So Mornington being probably the most famous one on everyone's lips right now. So Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. Yarra Valley, of course, is a is a very famous region in Victoria. But then you could go to you know Geelong, slightly less well known, but still very good. Again in Victoria, Tasmania. I mean, gosh, that's probably the the coolest, literally and metaphorically, region in the world right now, or place in the world right now. And Pinot is ping down there. Um, but don't forget um, South Australia, Adelaide Hills Pinot Noir. That's where I first started tasting my Aussie Pinot Noirs from, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and there are some great Pinots being made made up there. And then you can go further afield if you wish as well. You can pop over to, to Western Australia and you can you can find yourself up in the up in um, New South Wales in the sort of higher altitude um, vineyards there. So there's quite a lot of choice. Um, but I think if you wanted to find just one region to zero in on, it would be M- Mornington Peninsula right now. Is there any producer that you would particularly single out? I um, shouldn't really ask I, that, should I? <laughs> I'm not, that's a bit, it's a bit naughty to ask that, but, um, but uh, I, I looked at my 100 best list that's out now and I've been doing some roadshows around the UK um, and I have... Wakefield Pinot Noir that is an estate level it's 13 pounds it's Adelaide Hills fruit and so that is it's one of the I mean it's one of the best value Pinots on the planet so that's at one end and then I've got Muraduck um have a uh, single vineyard um the Muraduck vineyard uh Pinot and the current vintage is 2019 so actually if you think about that's four years old it's got had a chance to sort of mellow a touch um and that was impressing people greatly uh over the weekend in the middle, um, I had a, I showed a, showed quite a few actually. Um, I showed uh, a beautiful Paringa. Of course, that's another Mornington. That's a more robust style, slightly more indulgent, slightly more showy. So you would compare that to more of a Cote de Nuit style than a Cote de Bone style. Um, I've got, a, I've got 10 uh, Pinots and 100 Best this year just for headline wines, let alone those mentioned in the notes. And that's the most I've ever listed. So clearly the category is growing. If you look at the stats, the number of wines that are being given given big scores by other commentators um, is growing exponentially every year. So interest is there, but the wines are there too to back it up. Now, I was gonna I was gonna give you a final question on how you see the future for Australian Pinot Noir, but I think I think we know. But uh, but go on. Um, you know, will it, could it become a flag bearer for Australian wines in the same way as as the Cabernet Shiraz blends did, or do you think it will? ultimately remain a bit of a niche you know that appeals to a specific audience of of drinkers i think that where chardonnay goes pinot tends to follow and australia already has you know a remarkable chardonnay heritage and extraordinary wines at all price points that can be compared to the greatest chardonnays in the world in my opinion and pinot will follow not in the same volume of of production but will follow in the same footsteps with regard to style and definition and um, accuracy and reward. And of course, we're seeing the infancy of that right now, and it can only continue, not least because Vine Age is going to be a massive factor in that, and that's going to play into the Aussies' hands. But places like, for example, Tasmania, just it's sort of just starting, really. And you and I have been drinking Tasmanian wines for, for years, but in, a, in the greater sort of scheme of things, they haven't started and it's just going to and and the climate climate change is just can't affect tasmania can it it's a tiny tiny little island stuck in the middle of a freezing cold ocean so one would hope that they have a a very very good head start on the rest of the world 
if things start to get a bit trickier out there. Matthew Dukes, thank you so much. Pleasure. You did ask him some naughty questions there, didn't you? And, and quoting his own words back at him, comparing oh, the classic sort of Cab Shiraz blend with Peter Noir. Mm. Uh, and that was from a tasting you were part of with, I know. with well, Matthew. I, I, I know. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. I mean, I do know. I think I, I know Matthew well enough. <laughs> but I mean, his answers were really interesting to both those questions, yeah, weren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he knows the Australian wine scene inside out. And it's just really interesting to hear him so enthusiastic about mm. Aussie mm. Pinot Noir mm. across a range of of prices and styles you know he's he's yeah really excited isn't he yeah yeah i love the idea of pinot noir fervor you can just picture it in your mind's eye can't you i was a bit like the tomatina festival in, in i don't know why that's popped into my head from spain anyway uh, i was also struck by how he about tomato throwing worry. yes i am <laughs> how did we get there how did we get into tomato? i don't oh, know God, it just no popped idea. in i apologize uh, but, you know, I, I was really interested by you know how he's saying that australia literally fills the gap in price terms between the sort of humbler Pinot Noirs and the more vaunted ones of, I don't know, Burgundy, for example. Uh, and also that quality will get better and better over time because vine age is such a big factor when it comes to making good Pinot Noir. You know, young Pinot vines struggle to deliver real quality, but with age, they they come into their own and sort of start to speak of their sight. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's also worth picking up on the, on the regional theme. You know, mm, Matthew mentioned mm. a few regions, particularly Mornington Peninsula and Tasmania. But I think at this stage, it's worth just getting a really quick sense of the picture, the bigger picture for Australian Pinot Noir, isn't it? Great idea, great idea. Okay, so what we need is a thumbnail sketch of the key regions for Australian Pinot Noir in, in, I don't know, what, 20 seconds? You up for that? I was punding it over keep, to you, wasn't I? Keep you on I? time, keep no. you on schedule. Oh, there we here go. We go. No, you're, the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the point man here. Um, now, obviously, you know, in terms of Aussie regions for Pinot, we're talking cool climate mm-hmm. because you need a long season for Pinot's flavours to develop and you need freshness. Uh, and cool climate in Australia means being close to the sea or high altitude. Yeah, it right? does. It does. Yeah. So, so we're mainly talking about the south coast of eastern Australia between Adelaide and Sydney. Mm. So moving from west to east, and bear in mind, these are quite broad generalisations. Got 10 seconds left. So, so you've got Adelaide Hills in South Australia, which tends to give slightly richer, darker styles. Then moving into Victoria, around Melbourne, you've got the very coastal Geelong and Mornington mm. with soft and supple red-fruited styles. Mm. And then Macedon and Yarra offer some slightly higher altitudes, and so you get a, a blend of elegance and intensity there. Further along the coast, how am I doing? Going east, well. Gippsland is big. Big, uh, so varied in style, but again, some quite dense wines. And then you've got Tasmania, 260 miles south from Melbourne, which is the coolest, but also pretty dry and bright. And again, styles vary, but the best are taut and refreshing and just beautifully fragrant. Well, I would, say, I would say great job, but you, you know, you definitely went over time. But I think the content more than made up for it. Outstanding. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Brilliant. I mean, it is, of course, very broad brush. You know, Pinot is so site specific. You know, there's sub regionality yeah. and Which vineyards within yeah. the sub region. Yeah. Yeah, of course it does. But it's, it's sort of helpful, I think, just to get a sort of sense of it, isn't it? Mm. Now, mentioning Tasmania, that reminds me of a factoid. Oh, uh, that about half of Australia's Pinot Noir is used for sparkling wine rather than still. Makes sense. Just yeah. thought I'd drop that in there. Yeah. Anyway, coming up, we'll be hearing from wine grower Mac Forbes and sommelier Jane Lopes. 
To recap on the story so far, uh, Pinot Noir may not be Australia's most famous wine, but it's fast becoming a buzz category, growing in renown and diversity, with lots seemingly still to come. Talking of buzz and diversity, uh, it's time to bring in our second guest, Mac <laughs> Forbes. Now, Mac is based in the Yarra Valley and he makes a range of wines, all geared around expressing a sense of place. Made using regenerative agriculture and low intervention techniques, aiming for nuance and elegance. Now, he calls himself still a kid in the playground, having tons of fun. Uh, he's he's a lovely, thoughtful guy uh, who kindly took the time to chat with me, even though it was during harvest, I think his first day of harvest, and his dogs were slightly vying for his attention. Anyway, I asked him, given he's been making Yarra Valley Pinot Noir for 20 years, what had changed to put Australian Pinot Noir on people's radar? Look, there's... Plantings of Pinot that go back to the 60s and 70s in the Yarra Valley, and this is our second sort of history of, of vineyards in the Yarra, and Cabernet dominated the first round. For a long time, The I guess our understanding of fine wine was um, colour, tannin, oak, and um, and probably alcohol. So when you try to play with those um, those elements with Pinot, you, you end up with some pretty ugly wines. And the first people who really, I think, understood less is more and, and looking at the capacity of a vine and where that balance sits, they were farming on a pretty small scale. So to change a conversation, it's obviously going to take a lot more than a handful of small producers who've got four hectares as their starting point. It's um, it's a much bigger challenge and, and undertaking, which I think if you look at the states, if you look at a lot of or, you know, California and places where Pinot has slowly emerged, we've all dealt with similar challenges where insecurity and I guess our reference points were often coming from the wrong place. And and just say just moving then to why now you feel that the, the momentum momentum has been gained. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I do think if you come out now, even compared to five years ago, there's been a shift and so there is quite a little, quite a lot of questions being posed, a lot of discussion around what it means to be farming here rather than trying to make great Pinot. Um, the New World in particular, I think, has done a great job of demystifying wine and attaching a great variety to a, a connection with what's in the bottle, maybe at times at the expense of where it's from. But that demystification has been a fantastic thing. Now, I think, you know, our next chapter as, uh, as the Yarra Valleys is to identify our regional expression above any grape. And just on that, I mean, I know you have you have sites right across the Yarra Valley, all producing different sub-regional styles of Pinot. Yeah, it's a, I mean, this is where it's fun, isn't it? All of a sudden, the DNA of places is starting to emerge and... The Yarra Valley I used to curse because it was so complicated and I thought, why can't we just have one lovely aspect that runs north to south and we can just pull apart all the subtle changes and what a great story. Well, now I'm incredibly excited that we've got volcanic soils, we've got granite, we've got huge amount of clay loams and sedimentary soils and they all have such strong personalities as you would hope and expect and isn't Pinot a great starting point to tease those out? We've got a range of elevations from 80 metres to 1,300 metres. We've got just this array of, of microclimates gives me a huge amount of excitement that 
we've still got untouched areas of the Yarra Valley that are going to have a story to tell. Dogs. (laughs) The dogs are going mad. So moving on to the winemaking, Mac, how would you say that's changed and what are people focusing on right now in terms of Pinot? I mean, I'm thinking of attitudes to whole bunches, to uh, fermentation vessels, oak regimes. I think with the shift towards, the, you know, a farming focus, what has happened in the cellar is just a lovely return to, I guess, old school practices. It's um, less technology, not more. And where technology has can play a part is speeding up our learning about vineyard blocks and differences across a hill. But I see increasingly just, or sorry, a return to really old practices where foot stomping, a little bit of whole cluster, the, the desire to experiment, but not to introduce something that's from outside of the vineyard. So pulling everything back in terms of new oak, probably not picking as ripe as we used to. Most of my colleagues don't inoculate you know, so it's really trusting health of the vineyard, put the focus in the vineyard health, and then lean into that and actually give a bit more space once the fruit comes in. So there's a huge amount of trust, I think, if, you, if you're not going to be interfering as much. And that trust has really, I think, grown and probably less godlike complex for us winemakers that we're, we're realising it's if everything's pretty good in the vineyard, there's far less importance to the role we do in terms of having to get in there and, and meddle. Um, it's not always a good thing. Yeah, I love that sort of battle between how we analyse a wine and how we drink a wine. And they don't always fully correlate. You know, those great bottles that just vanish and you're like, oh, my God, why didn't I stop and take more time with that? And then those great bottles that sometimes you can't finish and you're like, well, I appreciate this so much. I respect it. I'm, I can see this is great, but for some reason I'm just not diving in to drink it as rapidly as I thought I would. They're amazing, you know, contradictions in the way we approach and engage this amazing, you know, preservation of a grape. Now, you mentioned Nebbiolo, um, which is interesting. Um, now, and I'm, I'm saying that in the context that Pinot Noir is notoriously demanding, obviously, as a great variety um, in terms of needing the right climate. Now, given climate change is increasingly evident, even in the Yarra, um, what are your thoughts on future planning? You know, do they involve grapes like Nebbiolo? You know, how will this play out in the next 10, 20, even 50 years? Well, this is the big question. Without doubt, this consumes more of our thinking than anything else. So we're looking at future proofing through better farming practice. We're looking obviously at where do we farm? So Tasmania, Southern Tasmania is obviously really interesting and we've got a little project down there, but where you plant is obviously crucial and then what you plant. So Nebbiolo, certainly Gamay in pockets where Pinot in, you know, in the future might be considered um, inappropriate for it being too warm. Cabernet will never go out of fashion in my book, although Cabernet has been pulled out a fair bit here. There's a huge amount of, I mean, the Italian varieties are really, you know, getting a strong foothold for natural, you know, obvious reasons around Australia. Much warmer regions are looking at, you know, narrow devilers. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great chance to reflect on what the next chapter looks like. It's really interesting where we, we you know, have been up, up until now. And then I think how drastically the landscape will change really ultimately for wine drinkers as much as those in, in the industry, which is really exciting. And, and will Pinot survive? Yeah, I actually do believe so. I, I, I keep thinking we underestimate 
you know, you have to look at even, I think, the last few years in Burgundy, some of those really warmings. Now there's a, a shift in, a, a, you know, a number of, I guess, the, the style from those warm, dry years. And people will have opinions on that. But I do think that Pinot is not as fickle as people would like to suggest. And I think we've got a lot of places in Australia that we haven't yet planted grape out to grapes and because they've been too cold and too marginal. And certainly I think Pinot will get a foothold there. Now, you mentioned Burgundy, so I have to ask, you know, just touching on price, with Burgundy, you know, becoming almost unaffordable um, and so often in short supply, fans of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are understandably looking for less expensive alternatives elsewhere in the world. Um, Australia would seem to be ideally placed, um, but it's also true to say the best Australian Pinots are pretty expensive. What's the thinking there? Do you think that's a potential barrier to their kind of ongoing appeal and success? I think that us Pinot drinkers just love to celebrate, I guess, the these fantastic wines from around the world. And I understand the economics of Burgundy. Um, I understand the economics of farming grapes in the Yarra Valley and how expensive it has become. Um, we do everything manually. We literally are hand hoeing our high-density blocks. There's, you know, it's... I don't want Pinot or wine in general to be considered a luxury item. I don't want sustainable farming to be a luxury item or activity. But there's no doubt that it's expensive to farm Pinot in cool climate regions where you've got high disease pressure. And so it's really, you know, it's a bit of an awkward conversation for me at times where that sits and how do we make it accessible. I want people to, you know, know the joys of Pinot and what it can share. So yeah, I think that's a that's a late night conversation that um, <laughs> throws up a lot of you know a lot of heated you know discussion. But I think it's the honesty that Pinot can convey, and you you see so much of the producer and the farming behind it, not just the region. That it's quite it's so revealing. It makes it so much fun, and the disappointments are terrible. But when you get those highs and and all the lines, because you feel that person and you feel the place. And it all just sits so beautifully. Um, I don't think it matters whether it's from Oregon or Central Otago or Yarra Valley or Burgundy. It's it's just a happy place to be. And you, you want to experience it, more, you know, every day if you can. A late night conversation over a glass of Pinot in the Yarra Valley as the sun sets. Sounds marvellous. Um, Matt Forbes, thanks so much. That was a pleasure. Thank you very much. So less of the God complex for winemakers, uh, more of letting the vineyard speak its truth. That's, you know, it's really exciting to hear, isn't it? But, you know, I I suppose thinking that through, it may also lead to quite a complex picture of what Australian Pinot Noir actually is and will become if all these sub-regions and single vineyards start making really unique wines in their own right. I mean, Um, that's... That is the beauty of Pinot Noir, isn't it? I mean, just look Mm. at Burgundy or Germany, coastal California, Oregon. It's what Pinot Noir naturally does. That's why we love it so much, you know, partly for the gorgeous wines, but also for the geekery, you know, (laughs) frankly, of of the way it speaks of of place and people and uniqueness. Uh, You know, as Max Mm. says, it teases out all the nuances and reveals the the DNA of places in a glass. Yeah. And, and clearly the Aussies are really, really aiming for that. Especially when it's foot stomped. I love that <laughs> you word. You just wanted love to that say word. that, didn't you? you? Know, it just adds a bit more DNA into the mix too, I suppose. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> 
Anyway, uh, as for Price, um, clearly an awkward topic for him, which you addressed at the end. You know, mm. he, he clearly doesn't want his Pinot Noir to disappear into the realms of luxury goods, you know, as some are now. You know, but I think price um, is such a key theme when it comes to Pinot, mm. especially in terms of where it sits in the market. Yeah. Um, so... To understand that a bit better, we mm-hmm. talked to Jane Lopes. Jane is a superstar sommelier who passed mm. the Master Sommelier exams in 2018. She's worked in some top, top restaurants in the US and Australia, like uh, Levin Madison Park and Attica. And she's married to Master Sommelier Jonathan Ross. Now, Jane and John recently returned from a spell living in Australia. Um, they're now based in Nashville, Tennessee, where they have a business called Legend, importing fine Australian wine to the US market. Um Jane's got a book coming out in August, September 2023 called How to Drink Australian. So I just had to ask her for her expert take on Aussie Pinot Noir. Um, you know, Australian Pinot Noir, I think pound for pound is is really, and of course I'm biased, but I think is really some of the most complex, profound interesting and also great value Pinot Noir in the world. Um, and, you know, value is not necessarily always a term associated with Pinot Noir. Um, but I think I think that the defining factor of, of Australian Pinot Noir is that Australia is a pretty high UV country, high sunlight. So I think in the best spots for Pinot Noir, and those tend to be the coolest spots, um, you get a lot of flavor development from the sun without a corresponding um, sugar development that turns into uh, alcohol from the heat. So you can get these really sort of nuanced, flavorful Pinot Noirs that are still really kind of lean and chiseled and have great acidity um, and kind of the structure you want from from Pinot Noir. So, but I do, I do think the the line there is Pinot Noirs coming out of Australia. I think if Australia has a fault for Pinot Noir, they can get a little bit confected. I think that high UV can sometimes create not necessarily like jammy or overripe sensations, but kind of like candied flavors. Um, but, you know, I think that can also be pleasant too. But I, I, I think the best Pinot Noirs and, you know, uh, I, I don't want to leave out a region, but, you know, I think Tasmania, Macedon Ranges... Gippsland, Adelaide Hills um, would be sort of at the top of my list. But then, of course, you get really amazing Pinot Noir from Geelong and Yarra Valley and Beechworth and, um, you know, in places we don't talk about too often, like Pemberton, parts of Great Southern, you know, stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I think as much as wine professionals and, and wine enthusiasts get really geeky about uh, regionality for Pinot Noir, you know, comparing this premier crew of Burgundy to the neighboring one. Uh, Australia offers all of that and more, you know, that like there are all these really distinct uh, regions for Pinot Noir that that offer totally unique styles from one another. Now, Jen, you're a very successful sommelier um, and you now also import Australian wine into the US. When it comes to, to selling Australian Pinot Noir, how does it go down? You know, what's easy, what's hard? How is it perceived at the uh, the American table, if we can say that? And also perhaps in Australia itself, because I know, you know, you work there too, haven't you? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, Australians really drink and love Australian Pinot Noir. I think sometimes there's not enough 
a appreciation for what's in your own back backyard, right? Where it's always kind of like, especially wine professionals in, in Australia get really geeky about Burgundy and kind of hold that up as the motherland <laughs> for Pinot Noir, which of course it is. But I think, um, I think sometimes it's not always people are realizing like the true world-class quality of Australian Pinot Noir in Australia. And and certainly that's the case in, in the U.S. as well, right? Where the U.S. has a lot of work to do to really recognize uh, Australia as a producer of premium wine, period. I think the general perception in, in the U.S. is um, Australia is either yellowtail or it's big bold Shiraz and there's not there's not really a, a, a knowledge much less an appreciation of um of different grapes and you know Pinot Noir being one of them so uh but in, in a sense we always say like expectations are low so when we go into uh a, a tasting with with a wine professional um with consumers do a dinner people are blown away you know they're just like I had no idea that Australia was producing this level of Pinot Noir and I think what Australia offers that that Burgundy doesn't, and to a lesser extent, Oregon and Sonoma don't, um, is the best examples, like the most profound wines that could age for 10, 15, 20 plus years from Australia are also pretty accessible on release. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and we don't want to compare Australian Pinot Noir to Burgundy, every single Pinot Noir around the world to Burgundy, but it is a comparison that comes up. And I think it's a relevant one. And you mentioned price as well. You know, some prices we've noticed for Australian Pinot Noir are pretty punchy these days. Um, are Australian Pinot Noir producers getting that balance right in your view? You know, because obviously Burgundy is becoming ever more expensive, ever scarcer. So people are looking for alternatives. You know, is Australian Pinot Noir in, in a sort of sweet spot? Or do you think that some are being ambitious, some are more reasonable? How do you see the issue of price with Australian Pinot Noir? Well, you know, Pinot Noir is... Is and it's an expensive grape to farm, right? And and to make, and you have to keep yields low, and typically there's some some new oak involved. So I think it's you know Pinot Noir is never going to be that grape that does well at twenty dollars retail, you know. Um, so I think value is kind of a, a different conversation for Pinot Noir. Um, I do think. I, you know, I think in general, Australians tend to sort of undervalue their, <laughs> their work. So I think uh, what we found for, for the most part, and there are exceptions, but for the most part, Australian producers are kind of charging the minimum that they really have to for their wines. Um, and so I do think Australian Pinot Noir as a whole tends to present a, a very good value. That doesn't mean it's dirt cheap. Um, but I do think if you, uh, kind of compare it to comparably priced Burgundy, Sonoma, Oregon, kind of, you know, these, these other major, major Pinot Noir regions of the world. I do think though the Australian wines tend to kind of quality for money come out on top. How do you see the future of Australian Pinot Noir, Jane? Um, you know, is it going to fizzle out uh, or is it going to get really big like Shiraz or Cabernet? Or, you know, is it going to remain a unique sort of intriguing niche that just keeps getting better and, and more diverse? Um, I hope and I, I think that definitely the, the possibility is there that it becomes more of a major calling card for Australia. I think... 
you know, certainly climate change is going to be a factor, but I do think Australia's Australians overall are really tapped into climate change and, and, and aware of what it's kind of doing to their vineyards and sites. And a lot of people are, you know, replanting or changing orientation or thinking differently about canopy management. Um, and so I think, and as I said, kind of in the Mastin Ranges context, and I think this is true of a lot of regions, there are, there are cooler climates, you know, there are still cooler places that haven't been planted that have been sort of thought of as too cold. And, you know, maybe in 20 years won't be too cold anymore. And so I think Australian Pinot Noir has the potential to kind of continue to evolve and become more nuanced. And, you know, it's exciting. Like we're, we're writing an Australian wine book and it comes out later this year. And a lot of Australians say, um, you know, when we interview them that they think a lot of the best sites haven't been discovered yet, you know, haven't been planted yet. Um, and also what's the best site now might not be in 50 years so that, but there is this real palpable sense of exploration and excitement in Australia right now. And I think, I think centering around Pinot Noir, absolutely, that people are really committed to kind of continuing to evolve, to get it right. And I think in a sense, Australia has this freedom because it's not burgundy, right? We haven't already carved out the Grand Cruz and the Premier Cruz where people can can be really, you know, there's a dexterity, there's a flexibility where Australians will continue to do what they need to do to find kind of the best sites and styles for for making great Pinot Noir. So the future is bright. Um, Jane, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> So did you know that the US is by far the biggest export market for Aussie Pinot Noir, double the size of the next biggest, which is the UK? So it's a really important market. I mean, Jane is obviously doing good work there, <laughs> yeah, quite clearly. You know, um, UK, US, interesting. You know, she actually said after the interview finished that, that it, it's hard work selling fine new wave Australian wine in the US. But Pinot Noir as a variety is really helping them to change those perceptions. You know, because it's closer to Burgundy in style than California or Oregon, in, in her view. And anyway, you know, Pinot from all uh, these other regions is getting ever pricier. So, you know, Aussie Pinot Noir can come in at an accessible price and in an accessible sort of early drinking style, you know, as she said. So mm, that was really mm. interesting to hear. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's fascinating to get that sommelier perspective, isn't it? Um, mm, mm. But Jane's brilliant, so do go yeah. and buy her book when it's out. Um, also interesting to hear that she's a fan of Tasmanian Pinot Noir like us. She is such good taste, such good taste, you know. So we should definitely <laughs> move swiftly onto our quickfire tasting, tasting. And tip, shouldn't we? Now, when you were out in Australia, you loved Tasmania, didn't you? I did. You know, for, I did. for many reasons. Oh, uh, truffle yeah. honey, maybe one. Truffle but, but one was <laughs> also the their Pinot Noir, wasn't it? Definitely their Pinot yeah, Noir. Yeah. So I think we should start with a wine you love, probably even more than me. Um, um, I could never say that, but but if you insist, I probably do. <laughs> um, you know, this this wine, um, I'm going to say it straight away, you know, every single vintage I taste of it, I love. And this mm. is the, it's Toll Puddle. Um, Toll mm. Puddle Pinot Noir, uh, 2021, mm. this particular vintage yeah. that we've got here from the Coal River. Valley in Tasmania and it is a thing of sheer beauty uh, just I'll try and describe it you know yeah. it's intensely complex when it comes to its aromatics and um, they go way beyond just dark berry fruit uh, you know it's leafy there's some gunflint there it's mm. incredibly nuanced uh, and just in 
so inviting. Um, mm. And then when you when you get this wine in your mouth, um, I'm, I'm going to just take a quick mouthful, can I? Mm. Mm. No, you've been drinking mm. it you know, before and you're going to carry oh, on. I just had to remind myself. You know, it, 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 you've got layers and layers of fruit. There's notes of ginger. There's a bit of sort of cumin, cumin spice. There's forest floor. It's The texture's silky. Um, it's seductive. It's long. You know, everything you want, everything you want from a great Pinot. Uh, it is made to drink, not really to taste. And made to buy too. You know, it's it's pretty pricey. Uh, it's about sixty eight quid in the UK. Yeah, but, but you, you know, know, in the context of so fine good. global Pinot Noir, I think it's a standout, isn't mm, it? Yeah. I mean, I think when we were tasting this one uh, before, you know, <laughs> yeah, earlier, no, you don't. said, "Why fart around with Burgundy when you can buy this?" But, well, yeah, can I quote yeah, you on that? I was, a bit, very I was a bit carried away, wasn't um, it? But no, I mean, it, it is. It's a real thoroughbred, isn't it? I, you know, if you were going to compare it with Burgundy, you put it in the sort of Maurice saint denis von Romany category, wouldn't mm, you? It's a yeah. wine you just want to kind of yeah. ferret around in, and yeah. probably just take a bath in. Frankly, <laughs> no, it's no, I wouldn't waste stunning. it on that. Blimey. Yeah, maybe not, maybe um, not. But no, no, every single vintage, as I say, I've tasted amazing. Anyway, moving on, but keeping very classy, mm-hmm. we mm. also love and have loved for a long time the Applejacks. Mm. Sorry, the Giant Steps Apple. Applejack Vineyard Pinot Noir 21 from the Yarra Valley. Now, this is seriously cultured Pinot Noir. It's mm. it's still very young, this vintage. It's light. It's elegant, incredibly elegant, but also really yeah. stylish, really complex. Mm. Mm. Just beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of, you, you smell it, it's like autumnal wood smoke, isn't it? It's sort of red fruits, herbal notes. I mean, mm. it's sort of reticent, but mm. with a real energy and, and, and elegant texture. It yeah. sort of lingers beautifully on the palate with tense acid and tannin but still understated you know it's just i know why i said it's got a real kind of grand cru feel this you know it's self-assured it doesn't have to shout it's almost sort of crystalline like great cheddar you know on the palate you get that sort of crunchiness that's not necessarily crunching itself it's definitely young you know we've been drinking the 2018 applejack and 2017 wombat creek haven't we which is so both from giant steps and elegant from the same uh producer and they they just manage that unique pinot noir balancing act of being very light and ethereal but actually really intense and perfume too yes so that's so that one's £42. Um, mm. uh, moving on to a couple of slightly less expensive options from the Adelaide Hills. Mm. First up, we have got mm. JC's own Pinot Noir 2020 yeah. Morialty Vineyard. This is £27 at Venorium. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a luscious style, sort of plusher, more ripe. I find this quite hedonistic, mm. the hedonistic end of Pinot Noir. But, mm. you know, it's fun. It's got a bit of that gamey Pinot character. It slips down very easily. You know, I made notes and said it's a bit like ripe Nuit Saint George on speed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't keep comparing it to, such a thing. to Burgundy, should we? Really, but it's just to give it a context. But it's it's really fun that one, isn't it? So different in style is one I've got here. It's the Heirloom Vineyards Pinot Noir 2021. That's 1999. Uh, also from the Adelaide Hills. Now this one has some definitely has some classic sort of Aussie minty eucalypt notes, but but they're, they're not overdone and they sort of tie in with the leafy and dark berry scents, and then just a really juicy sort of bittersweet cherry palette profile. Yeah, um, yeah. lots of bang Lovely. for your buck there. I think mm. it's. it's you know, it's like the JC. Well, no, it's not like the JC. It, like mm. the JC, it's it's sort of more new world style. Yeah. But it's elegant in that context, you know, a good yeah. restaurant wine. It is the kind of, you know, if you got this in a restaurant, you'd be really happy, yeah. wouldn't yeah. you? Now, one final recommendation mm. is the Ben Haynes Steels Creek Pinot Noir 2021 from the Yarra Valley. Uh, it's only 11.5% mm. alcohol. Mm. It's £24. And this is the other end of the spectrum. You know, it's very pale, very elegant. And um, it's got that slightly natural style feel to it and complexity. A bit of, you know, grippy, chalky tannins, bit of attitude to it uh you know great with something like a plate of you know um i don't know cold meats uh maybe not the most cultured or intense but 
I'd say smashable, fun, <laughs> smashable. looks good. Yeah, you know, it does look our, good. Our daughter said it's the one she'd want to drink just from the label. Yeah, it's very cool. It's, it's very, very cool. cool. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's worth, you know, to conclude, it's worth emphasising just how different in style all these wines are, aren't they? You know, Absolutely. We tasted quite a few Australian Pinot Noirs this episode and one of the most exciting things is the variety of styles out there now. You know, I guess partly a result of, of terroir expression but also because of, I don't know, how, how people are making and growing them in very individual ways. You mm. know, it's, it's utterly fascinating and certainly not boring and bodes very well for the future. So are we concluded, concluding by saying there is no such thing as Australian Pinot Noir? Maybe. That would be a bit meta, wouldn't it? So I won't go that far. Anyway, we'll be more, we'll be practical and say you can find all these wines on the show notes and more on our website, including a very cool one that comes in a can. Indeed. Uh, By way of summary, Australian Pinot Noir is coming of age and well worth exploring. Uh, Climate change, increasing vine age and ongoing experimentation will make this an ever-changing picture. But regions like Tasmania and Yarra are already proving that Aussie Pinot Noir has a very bright future. So that's it for this episode. Uh, thanks to Wine Australia and also to our wonderful guests, Jane Lopes, Mac Forbes and Matthew Jukes. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.